Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve, and not around our imaginary table uh, <laughs> is our colleague Sarah, who uh, we wish well, but is currently right now dealing with uh, floodwater issues in a basement after a hurricane uh, swept through uh, her region. So uh, we're going to look forward to a day when Sarah can be with us around our conversation. Um, but podcasts still continue on, and so um, w- what's going on for us this series, Erica? So we are in. We continue in our series on weird Bible stories. Um, we started a few weeks ago in, in the Old Testament looking at Jacob when he wrestled with God or a God-like figure. Uh, we looked at the Witch of Endor, uh, not the Star Wars planet, but... <laughs> a place in the Old Testament times. Then we jumped into the Gospels and looked at uh, Hangry Jesus and the fig tree. Um, And we looked at some jailbreaks of the apostles in the book of Acts. Um, And that leads us up to today's episode. So where are we taking it? Yeah, well, we, um, maybe not intentionally, but we sort of delightfully settled into a flow through the order (laughs) of the Bible delightfully. So we're going to take a look at another really weird story in the book of Acts, a little bit later on in the story where uh, the figure of uh, Paul, who's a pretty important figure in New Testament Christianity, wrote, you know, half the New Testament, um, uh, is... um, preaching and something curious happens, something that is boring and curious at the same time. Um, and maybe the, the, the preachers in both of us can sympathize with what happens or have this fear or nightmare. But uh, in chapter 20 of the book of Acts, there's this weird little story. And I don't know about your Bible, but mine just gives it the, the, su- the subheading, Paul's farewell visit to Troas. It gives no hint about what's about to happen. So uh, the story goes like this. This is in Acts uh, chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, when we met to break bread, Paul was holding a discussion with them. Since he intended to leave the next day, he continued speaking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were meeting. A young man named Eutychus, who was sitting in the window, began to sink off into a deep sleep while Paul talked still longer. (laughs) Overcome by sleep, he fell to the ground three floors down below and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and, bending over him, took him into his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Then Paul went upstairs, and after he'd broken bread and eaten, he continued to converse with them until dawn. Then he left. Meanwhile, they had taken the boy away alive and were not a little comforted. <laughs> okay, we've said it every episode, but that's a weird story. It is a very weird story, and it's a preacher's worst nightmare, as you said, Steve, like yeah. having somebody fall asleep. Thankfully, at least in my congregation, and I think in yours as well, if somebody falls asleep, they're just in a pew. Right. So they're probably not going to fall out a window. This is why we don't have seats in the balcony perched on open windows anymore. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, there's so many ways this story is weird, and the fact that there's no expectation for this strange left turn of somebody falls out the window because the sermon was so long, and dies, and then is revived, it, it's just so bizarre. And I guess... Like right at the top, one of the things that makes it so uncomfortable for me, in addition to being a preacher who's nervous about putting people to sleep myself, is in other stories where, say, Jesus revives someone from the dead, you know, Jairus' daughter or the the widow's son in Mm -hmm. Maine or whatever, the death has already happened, and Jesus walks in only getting to do the heroic part of, of, you know, raising somebody. And in this story, (laughs) Paul is the reason that the young man... (laughs) 
seems to die. And uh, like that feels like it's less like a credit to Paul and more like a you made the mess, now you have to fix the mess. You know, like if if I hit somebody with my car, I don't get credit for going over and saying, Hey, are you okay? That's the bare minimum for being a decent human. And Paul, while he didn't mean to hurt this person, is responsible for him falling out the window, kind of. <laughs> and I never looked at it that way, but you're right. Paul was kind of like if you would have been a little bit more engaging, Paul, yeah. or if you wouldn't have spoken till midnight and right. then continued on until dawn after you revived this poor kid, right. maybe he wouldn't have fallen out of the window and died. Yeah, and and I guess even the, 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 the death and resurrection part is weird, too. Because, like, when Jesus raises people from the dead, uh, not that it's a super frequent occurrence, but enough in the Gospels that there's sort mm-hmm. of a rhythm to it, often... Jesus will say something like I'm thinking of the story of Jairus' daughter. He'll say she's not dead, she's sleeping. Um, but like it's clear by the narration, the person has actually died, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that this no, they're just sleeping is sort of like a, a wink of hope, or it's uh, like a, trying to keep people from getting to you know, raising a ruckus. So no, 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 she's just sleeping. I'm going to wake her up. That kind of thing. Same thing with the Lazarus story. Mm-hmm. But it's clear in all those that they're actually dead. But mm-hmm. Paul's language is is similar, but a little bit weird, right? That you know the the young man. Eutychus is is picked up dead, but Paul looks at him and says, don't be worried, his life is in him, rather than, he's dead, but oh, I'll pray and he'll be raised. It's sort mm-hmm. of this like, well, is he or is he not dead? Is he, you know, unconscious? Is he passed out? You know, and that makes it harder to pin down what exactly happens here. Is it that it turns out the boy was really going to be okay and Paul just said, whew, I dodged a bullet there? Or does Paul do something that miraculously resuscitates him? I'm not really sure. <laughs> Considering that he fell from the third story window, I'm going to guess that, I mean, he was severely unconscious at the very least. Right, right, right. And, you know, um, everything about the story makes it feel like death and resurrection. But even like, like, Jesus has a way in the in the stories of saying something definitive that you can, okay, here's where the mu- the, the miracle happens. Mm-hmm. You know, Talitha Kumi, little girl, get up. Or Lazarus, I say to you, arise. Um, or even when, when uh, Peter or Paul, Peter or, or, or James earlier in the book of Acts will heal somebody, they'll say something like, I say to you, get up and walk. Mm-hmm. And here, it's more like this... Well, nobody's paying attention, it turned out Eutychus revived and they just sort of took him back home, you know, to get some rest. Yeah, there's no urgency, like, in any of this. Yeah. Like, it almost sounds like, you know, okay, the kid falls out the window, and Paul doesn't stop and, like, run down to see, like... Yeah. It almost sounds, and we don't have commentary on exactly how quickly Paul waited down three flights of stairs or whatever, but it seems like he kind of just casually walked down the stairs... Yeah, took care of the kid, and then walked back upstairs and kept preaching. And like that's the other part that's that just messes with me is the end of the story where after all this, instead of saying okay, it's clearly it's too late, we should all go to bed, Paul is convinced what he has to say is so important. Mm-hmm. Go, go back upstairs, and that the breaking bread happens too. That 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 says something to me that maybe in 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 my ears I need to re-examine why it, why it is this would have been so important for everybody who lived through the story that to me it feels weird like that breaking bread is, is probably not just a euphemism for they ate but that's that's their celebration of what we call the mm-hmm. lord's supper or eucharist so often in in the the book of acts the disciples breaking bread together it was all this sort of like worship flowing into an actual meal flowing into the lord's supper and that this was an essential you know part of the, the early christian life together um and I gotta be honest, we it feels like we live in a culture where it's a lot easier to cancel or skip out on church stuff. Mm-hmm. And here, this is so essential. Like this is Paul's last night with us. We gotta hear everything he has to say because he's gonna be gone. And that there was an urgency that we often don't have, you know. 
But they break bread twice. In yes, this like they're starting. They they were meeting with the idea of breaking bread, but this is going on so long that yeah, and maybe they do it again. I mean, like it, and again, it's breaching till dawn, so maybe it's time for breakfast again. But it it is interesting that that there's an urgency of we need to hear what Paul has to say. We need to finish what mm-hmm. we started. I'm glad Eutychus is okay, but we have to finish this. And again, like I guess I I'm I'm guilty or susceptible to the idea too. Um, Sometimes I think we treat preaching, I say this as a preacher, like it's mostly harmless. And that, like, mm-hmm. well, if the sermon is shorter, well, that's fine, it doesn't really matter, we'll catch up next week. Whereas the early church is like, this is our last chance to hear what Paul has to yeah. say. This is a matter mm-hmm. of urgent life for us. And maybe they have that awareness. They might never see him again because he's constantly on the run and is regularly evading arrest. And, I mean, this is the way the story goes. He eventually does get arrested at the end of the journey, goes to Rome and is mm-hmm. awaiting on trial there where, spoiler alert, eventually gets beheaded by the Empire. So there seems to be that awareness that this was a, you need to get to hear Paul while you can, um, in a way that I think we are almost like so comfortable with church life sometimes. We're so spoiled that it's like, eh, I missed this week, I'll catch next week. Or, you know, the, the sermon wasn't that good, I'll try again next week. And maybe, like, there was an urgency to the early church that, that it, it puts me to shame to read a story like this and mm-hmm. go, man, we treat this so casually sometimes. And we, like I said, the urgency, the fact that he goes on for so long, because as preachers, we know this, there's right. always that person in the church that when you get too close to lunchtime or whatever, right. is looking down there, watch, looking at the clock in the back, and they're like, mm-hmm. hey, hey, preacher, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to miss lunch because the Presbyterians are going to get there first. Right. right, right, one right. Of us <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and yet these folks are willing to just sit and listen and mm-hmm. even... Even if they weren't breaking bread, even if they weren't having a meal or mm-hmm. or uh, the Lord's Supper, whatever it is that they were doing, like they realize the importance of this message, yeah, um, and they're willing to just sit there, yeah, all day long. It feels to me like this is one of those moments that reminds me the the early church was a lot more like an underground resistance movement mm-hmm. and a lot less like a pastime for Sunday morning. Yes, and that. If there's that urgency, if you feel like you are part of a resistance movement under the nose of the empire and you need to, what's our strategy? How are we going to live together? How are we going to take care of each other? What's going to happen when dear old Uncle Fred gets rounded up by the you know local police and they throw him in jail or try feeding us to lions? That you needed the direction and wisdom of whatever leaders mm-hmm. you know could help you know and and who could give you direction of okay? Here's how we're going to respond. We're not going to you know take. Uh, we're not going to go up in arms and fight them off. We're going to you know live and share the good news and whatever. Um, but if if that's if that's the situation, yeah, you want to get all the the strategy you can from the local traveling leader who's got insight. Um, and in an age where there isn't like social media or a phone to go call somebody from a distance, it's you you take advantage of the time when they're around mm-hmm. when you can because you might never see them again. I guess I wonder, like, how how part of what what shocks me about this story that I need to be shocked in is just that, like, part of what makes it weird is that there's an urgency that so often 21st century Americans don't have, yeah. and that instead of 
like so often in this series, we've taken a look at weird stories and go, boy, they're weird, we're normal. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe a story like this goes like, something's gone wrong with us if we aren't that urgent about the importance of gathering together and, and hearing God's word and, and seeing our faith as part of this underground resistance movement, this countercultural revolution of good news, rather than just the thing I do for an hour on Sundays before a football game or going mm-hmm. out to lunch or something. And like that urgency, it... There's a line there where it says, many lamps in the room upstairs, you know, that were lit when they were meeting. Obviously, they're meeting at night because, you know, Eutychus falls out the window at midnight. Right. uh, And Paul continues to preach till dawn. This is in a time and an era in which the church is being persecuted. Sure. And so to have a bunch of lamps lit in a room. Sure. That, you know, that late into the night is clearly, there is some sort of gathering going on here. And yet it's important enough for them to meet together that they... Or willing to risk yeah. being seen, being noticed. I mean, if you got Roman guard just wandering up and down the streets, they're going to notice yeah. on a dark street a room with lots of lamps lit yeah. in it. Yeah. This this reminds me too, and again, to to our shame or my shame, like of the stories you hear from the the period of uh, enslavement in the United States mm-hmm. when. Enslaved people would escape off the plantation, go into the woods for worship in the middle of the night, knowing that if they got caught, it was bad news. It was, you know, someone's going to get whipped or beaten or killed or sold off or whatever. But they would do that. They would have those places to gather for worship because it was so life-giving and that they knew the danger but did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because they were convinced when they gathered that gave them a life and, and help them to face the rest of life while they had to deal with how do we face being enslaved and how do we look toward freedom and things like that. And again, like I, I think we end up treating our faith lives like it's a hobby or it's a, mm-hmm. one small piece of a very busy life and I also have to devote some of my attention to a football game or to my kid's soccer practice or do the million other things I want to do. And when it's no, this is who we are, this is what brings us to life, it has a way of rearranging our priorities for sure. And we get that something like this happened in in the book of Acts with the early church, you know, for the first 300 years of the church. We understand that. We know church history. But we don't think about this happening still today. And yet it does. Like, I think about the house churches of China. I think about um, the church in Afghanistan right now with the Taliban, you know, taking over again. Um, You know, there there are Christians, there are brothers and sisters around the world that continue to meet very much like Mm -hmm. this group here in Acts Mm -hmm. with one person who has all the knowledge who can, you know, who may have part of a Bible. Yeah. uh, Not even a whole Bible, but they'll have parts of a Bible in their language. Sure. And it's trying to share that and tell that with the people. And they'll they'll even, um, I read a book years ago and I'm blanking on the name of it completely, but it was... um, it was written by a gentleman who was part of the, the house church movement in China mm. who was in prison and beaten and everything. And I'm pretty sure, like, you know, they would take a Bible and they would tear it apart and, like, give pieces. Yeah. Because you, you didn't have one for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, as we're talking here, I, I'm sitting in my office. I've got a Bible in front of me. I've got, like, six on the shelves. and yeah. You know, like, I've got, you know, 20-some-odd Bibles yeah. at my fingertips yeah. here in my office. Yeah. Um. But we have brothers and sisters around the world that can barely get a full copy. Right, right, right. And and I guess that tells me something, too. I think sometimes we assume like it's, 
Bible ownership that makes one Christian. You know, like, yeah. or like mm-hmm. if you if you read the whole Bible, like there are people who maybe all they've ever had to go on is a handful of sermons from some wandering itinerant preacher who was able to make it to their you know underground location or whatever, um, and that. It's it's possible and indeed vital sometimes that it's okay that you can live on that much mm-hmm. um, and not that, that sometimes we assume good Christianity is you you know go through a read through the Bible in a year plan and you go to this or that Bible study like well yeah. these are our forms that's fine but there are places where it is much more urgent and um, you take what you can get you know uh-huh. I, I I have heard uh, pastors from our companion churches in uh, Tanzania and they talk about in places and where it's less about persecution but just about the sheer distance between congregations yep. and mm-hmm. where the most respected pastors ride on motorcycles and the new pastors ride on bikes like, but you're talking about you know tens of miles a hundred miles sometimes between places and mm-hmm. because of that it's it's not like well the service better start at 11 o'clock if the preacher's late I'm gonna be missing brunch but you wait until the preacher shows up because they are bringing a word from God and um, everybody waits and whenever they arrive that's when it's time to start mm-hmm. and I, I, again I, I say this not with the sense of we preachers in America need to get more respect and people should give us more slack oh, no, no. Preach, but more like Man, it is so easy for us to treat this like a hobby or to be upset when we're inconvenienced and pretend mm-hmm. inconvenience is persecution when there are, yeah, like you say, sisters and brothers in, in the faith in other places even right now whose struggles are much more difficult to deal with and yet it is that much more precious to them um, because they they realize the importance and the, the preciousness mm-hmm. of being able to gather and being able to hear you know a, a word from the Lord. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I wonder then, like, okay, and we, we've said before when we talked about Acts last time that the goal isn't necessarily how do we make the 21st century church fit the mold of what the first century was. You yeah, can't, can't, get, you know, can't, can't um, mm. get Pandora's box, you know, re, repackaged again, can't, can't unring that bell. Um, but what are, what are things that maybe we can learn from a story like this or from that setting that that would help us who are maybe comfortable in our faith or complacent in our practice of religion as hobby instead of this life-giving thing that you should be willing to stay up all night for. Well, I think just, you know, the fact, like you said, it, you, they were willing to stay up all night. Like, what are we willing to sacrifice mm-hmm. to go deeper into our relationship with God and mm-hmm. with Jesus Christ? Because mm-hmm. um, I, I don't, th- you know, so many people like like we've said already you know it's a sacrifice to go to worship on sunday morning Mm -hmm. you know it's well that's time i'm not doing this around my house so it's time that i'm not getting to watch the um the opening quarter of the football game or whatever you know like what are we willing to give up so that we can grow deeper um because imagine if tomorrow everything that we have Mm -hmm. was stripped away Mm -hmm. How much of scripture would we know? Mm-hmm. How much about Jesus would we be able to share with others mm-hmm. if we did not have a Bible in front of us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and are we willing to make the sacrifice? Not saying you have to memorize the whole thing or even sure. an entire book, but like, are you willing to dig in enough sure. to be able to share more than just John 3.16? Sure. I guess I even think too that that suggests that the early church and, and maybe in places where there is real and strong and severe persecution as well even today. But like there's an understanding that the Christian faith 
wasn't merely a set of things you believe and memorize once and then sort of like check it off like okay I'm in, yes. I'm in God's covenant uh-huh. but like this is about the ongoing challenge of how do I live my life in difficult circumstances and where it's necessary to continue hearing somebody speak or teach on yeah how do I encounter how do I deal with you know, uh, you know when, when the Roman soldiers are coming to arrest us or how do mm-hmm. I deal with how do we take care of our neighbors or how do we help when there's a famine or how do we face this or that problem and that it's that sense of how we live that, that is what Christianity is about, not simply have I memorized enough correct propositions from a creed so that I get to heaven when I die. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that you find very little of that language in the book of Acts and much more about these are people trying to take the way of Jesus seriously, not just in what they said or taught others, but how they lived. And, I mean, you'll even look at Paul's letters. And while he will mm-hmm. talk about abstract, you know, in our mind kind of concepts, justification and sanctification, then he gets very, very into the nitty-gritty of, okay, now, share with each other what you have. And mm-hmm. now, here's how you deal with hostility. And here's how you deal with, you know, uh, your families. And how do you deal with, you know, a hostile government or a hostile, uh, a hostile neighborhood or whatever. That it's... It, it's and I know sometimes in our era, we can treat that practical piece like, well, that's, that's Paul being pastoral. We don't need to pay attention to that. We, get, we need the pure doctrinal part of the first half of the mm-hmm. letter. That will help us make the perfect systematic theology. When for the early church, it was like, okay, thank you, Paul. We know that stuff, but help us. How are we going to actually live or face you know, this week? Um, and again, I think sometimes we, we lose that and treat Christianity like, it's a set of things you have to have memorized, whether it's in a catechism or things you got to say in a in a prayer or mm-hmm. or you know, something that do you, did you you know say this sentence and then you get to go to heaven when you die when the early churches thought about things differently you know yeah I'm this fall I'm working through a series uh, with my congregation I asked them for their favorite verses mm-hmm. and I gave them two um, prerequisites that you couldn't pick John three sixteen or <laughs> Psalm twenty three but I wanted one from Old and New Testament and as we're going through this series. Um, what I'm trying to teach these folks is not just all these are pretty words that might bring you comfort or challenge you in some way or whatever, but like these are words that you need to apply. Like it's not so much memorizing um, Psalm 103 or um, you know, Isaiah 40, 31. It's okay. So what do you do then with these pretty words that bring you comfort? How do you live them out? Yeah. and, And I see that, you know, like you said, in the book of Acts, in Paul's letters, yes, Paul, you know, Romans 8 has some great theology, systematic theology, you know, but what do you do with that? Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I, I appreciate about my tradition. We don't have, John Wesley never put together a systematic theology for, right. for the Methodist Church. Um, we have his sermons, we have his notes on the New Testament, we have a bunch of things from him, but he never wrote down, sat down and wrote, like Luther did, a catechism yeah Mm -hmm. um which not saying that's helpful i've read luther's small catechism it's very helpful i think it's very useful but sometimes we take those things and we're like okay i've got luther's small catechism down or i've got whatever the westminster whatever sure pick one of them and okay i got that down so i'm good right well and i even think too as someone who grew up learning the catechism uh, as well it's possible to treat that as a book of answers to be memorized and so often that's how it's taught mm-hmm. whereas like to actually read even luther's catechism it is immensely practical about okay how do i live with my neighbor and how yep. do i deal so like it is very much about how do i live not simply what are the correct doctrines that i have to believe as though save being saved by faith is about do you know enough correct answers you know and that's why I appreciate about his catechism versus some of the others where I glanced at that yeah. are very much yeah. question, answer, question, right. an, you know, and it's not living it out. Right, right, right. Uh, where Luther's does at least 
Okay, question, answer, and this is how you live it out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking right now of a... There's a passage from one of Wendell Berry's novels, um, and Wendell Berry's one of those interesting authors who clearly is captivated by Jesus and is sometimes very disappointed with church. <laughs> um, uh, join that club, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. But there, there's a place where he has one of the... the Characters who, and I'm going to confuse which one it is. It might be out of Hannah Coulter, but um, the the characters are like reflecting on like wisdom for how you live life despite all the heartaches and difficulties and loss. And whoever the character is, they've lost somebody they care about. That's part of life in Wonderberry novels too. But the person comes back around to saying, "Okay, here's the wisdom I have for life," and they end up quoting late in First Thessalonians and its words. Rejoice always, pray without mm-hmm. ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, re- you know, return, uh, don't return evil for evil, um, hold fast to what is good. And like, it's, it's, I remember the first time I came across that going, oh, those are Bible verses. And then realizing that's not like a, a theology Bible verse. That's part of what I always grew up with. Oh, those are the just practical parts at the end. But there's something really beautiful about living a life of, okay, how do you actually live this life mm-hmm. and all its messiness and difficultness? Um, it's, it's honestly, it's not an abstract theology diagram that gets you through. Um, but it's okay. How will we respond to the messiness and pain and, how, and suffering of life? Okay, we'll practice gratitude, and we won't respond to evil with evil, and we'll look mm-hmm. out, you know, patiently. Like there's something beautiful about that. That in a tradition like mine, that it sometimes is so quick to say, don't focus on what you do because that sound it's going to sound like you're earning your salvation by what you do. Like there's something beautiful about the early church saw it mattered how you live. Nobody thought it were earning anything from God, but like how do we live in light of who God is? How do we face the mm-hmm. challenges of this week? And when when you when you frame things that way, it, it makes it makes all that practical piece of the New Testament beautiful rather than drudgery or oh I've got to do all this stuff to impress God. It was never about that, but it's how do I face my life if the things I I believe about God and about Jesus are true? Mm-hmm. And I guess that kind of thing makes me think, yeah, maybe maybe it would be worth it to stay up all night to hear somebody giving me direction for how to do that. Like, I love the, you know, I love the verses, you know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't love it because, you know, <laughs> there's an upper. <laughs> it's not an upper in, in the sense of like Psalm 23 is or right. whatever, but like, it's one of those, like, it's a succinct, you know, right. gospel. But then, like the Thessalonians passage, um, Micah 6, 8. Right. Um, you know, what the, he has told you more what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Yeah. Like that has been a verse that has been one of my personal favorites and has challenged me for years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because that's not just, you know, believe this, think this, you know, right. but it's just how do you show that you love God? Right. How do you show that you follow God? Mm-hmm. You do these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I see that verse from Micah just laid out throughout the Gospels in the New Testament, you know, and all that Jesus does, he's doing justice, he's loving mercy, you know, he's yeah. walking humbly with God, and he's our example. Uh, and I try to live into that and fail mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. almost daily. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, and, and I think that's probably what Paul's getting at here in Acts, you yeah. know, that he's not just telling them information just for information's sake, but okay, this is what it means to follow Christ, and yeah. this is how you live this out. There is something humbling as I think about that, um, and about how different that must have been for Paul, and how he thought about what he was going to tell these people on his last night with them, versus how so often we think about how preachers construct a sermon. And like I, I know everybody's approach to you know writing or crafting a sermon is different, mm-hmm. and I don't mean to be uh, too hard on us preachers as well, but like sometimes there is that 
temptation of like, okay, what's going to be a memorable illustration or a joke or what, like, what, what's what's a pop culture reference? And like, Paul clearly was not interested in what pop culture references he could make, but like, the words that I speak are going to be all these people have to live on for a long time until mm-hmm. either I can pass through or somebody else can pass through and give them the word. What do I need to make sure they know that that's so different from? Got to better make sure it's not more than ten minutes. Got to make sure there's a joke. Mm-hmm. Got to make sure like and that. Clearly, Paul isn't bothered by the kinds of things that so often um, make preachers these days, you know, fussy about. Were we too funny, too long, too political? Or like Paul's just like, here's the things you need to know to live on. And I guess like that's um, provoking me, even just as we reflect on the mm-hmm. story about like how do how do I even pro- approach this coming Sunday differently than I would have if it were just the preachers here to give a nice, you know, m- relatively harmless, bland-ish ten-minute talk or something yeah. like that. There's a, there's an old line I've heard attributed to Paul Tillich, uh, the 20th century systematic theologian, <laughs> but the line goes, "Sermonettes make Christianettes," um, and I think it was it was <laughs> that good. sort of like uh-huh. criticism of like if if the notion of a sermon is it's like here's just a neat little pick me up thought you know like a little nugget like a tweet of twenty you know two hundred forty characters or less. Um, yeah, we're going to have stunted growth the same way if all we ever mm-hmm. eat is junk food. Is might fill your belly for a minute, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't give you the energy to keep powering through the day. Um, that changes how how any of us who are who do this kind of work as part of our lives uh, a, a different sense of responsibility, I guess. I mean, so still make sure nobody's going to fall out the window when we're talking, but <laughs> make sure that what we're saying is worth listening to. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to keep exploring more stories uh, in further episodes, so we sure appreciate you joining us here. uh, But catch us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all.